them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The second reading is from Acts 17, and it's on page 1111. Starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who... Uh, speaks to us clearly. You're a God who is uh, gracious and kind and merciful. And we ask that as we uh, get into these opening chapters, these, this opening part of the Bible, your word, you'll give us insight and understanding to know who you are and how we can be responding to you. So, Father, we commend today to you. We commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an outline there in front of you too, if you'd like that as we move along. Uh, I... I don't need to tell you that as we come to this opening chapter of the Bible, we enter into controversy. Right? You know that, and I know that. Um, different questions come up. There's the debate about creation and evolution. Uh, how old is the earth? Are we talking about six 24-hour days? Uh, you might today have come to, to hear me disprove issues about evolution. Uh, you may have come today because you're hoping I will seamlessly synthesize uh, the, uh, what, what the Bible says with the notion of um, evolution and put those together in a wonderful way. Or it could even be you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and one of the reasons is because of this part of the Bible. As you can't reconcile uh, what you read here about the Creator God with what you hear constantly uh, from the world around us. There are those sorts of issues. Now, can I say it's not, it's not wrong to ask the question about the interaction between the Bible and science. Not a wrong thing to do, but I want to suggest to you it's not the right question to be asking when we come to this part of the Bible. It's actually a, a, a misapplication, really, when we come to this. And I, I'll try and illustrate by using a, an analogy. I want you to imagine that uh, you are a first-year medical student studying at Adelaide University. I don't think we've got any of those here, but I want you to imagine that you are, all right? which for some of us might be going back a few years. But first-year med student, and you're coming up for your first semester exam in anatomy. Okay, Anatomy 101, and the professor who's lecturing you says, for the first time in the history of the medical school at Adelaide University, it's going to be an open book exam. Right? You can take the textbook into the exam with you to answer the questions. And everyone knows that textbook. It's 1,642 pages long, huge, thick volume, and everyone celebrates. Hooray! Finally, the university is becoming more sensible and we can take a book in with us. You all roll up, all 142 of you in first-year med to sit anatomy for the exam. You're all standing around out in the foyer. Everyone with their thick volume tucked under their arm, and you notice that you have a friend across the foyer who doesn't seem to have the textbook tucked under their arm. And you're thinking, what is going on? They have a much thinner volume. And so you make your way across to talk to that friend and discover 
that instead of having the mammoth textbook on anatomy under their arm, they have instead this book, the Australian Women's Weekly Cookbook. All right? Cookbook. Take you into the exam. And you think, oh, no, my poor friend, it's going to be an absolute disaster. And you say, why on earth have you bought a cookbook to the Anatomy 101 exam? And your friend looks at you with this, you know, this knowing look and says, well, you know, bearing in mind it's anatomy. Well, you know, you are what you eat. (laughs) Now, you sort of, I mean, you can sort of get that. Yeah, you know, I guess eating does affect your body anatomy, all that. But it's not, it's really misplaced, isn't it? Can I suggest to you, when you ask these early chapters of the Bible, questions that are of a scientific nature, they're not the questions this part of the Bible is put there to answer. They're not there for that reason. In fact, this part of the Bible is written to answer much more profound and important questions. Uh, This part of the Bible is totally reliable, totally trustworthy, totally authentic in every way. But the questions it's written to answer are these questions. Who is God? Who are we and what is our purpose in this world? Why is the world like it is? What's our relationship with God and the world meant to be like? How How does that work? It answers questions like, why is the world such a strange mixture of, of beauty and, and grace and delight? And yet, a world that is full of pain and heartache and sickness and death. You see, friends, they're, they're the much more important questions that this part of the Bible seeks to answer. So, let me say, rather than impose our questions on the Bible... What we're going to be doing is turning to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 and ask what is God saying to us, to hear what he says to us, not, uh, not putting him in the dock. So that's where we're going. We'll do this over seven weeks and we'll see how we go. So pressing on. Genesis chapter 1, you heard it read, is an extraordinarily sophisticated a piece of literature. Apart from being God's word, it is very carefully constructed. And yet... As you heard it, uh, we heard it read, and Tom did such a... Didn't he do a great job reading the Bible? What a great voice for reading the Bible. Um, When you hear it read, that may not have been your first impression, sophisticated literature, because you you hear stuff that seems repetitious. Maybe even by the time you got to the end of the reading in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, you thought... It's a little bit boring, you know, sort of it seems to go to the same territory again and again and again. Or even childish because, you know, I mean, who starts a great work of literature with these words? In the beginning, you know. Um, do you know what I mean? So you, maybe you had some of those reactions as you see this part. But I'm going to suggest that this has been extraordinarily carefully crafted. So we actually, and the way it's crafted contributes to the central message. Let me just point out some features in this first chapter so you can get the feel of what's going on. Did you notice that there's a strong use of the number seven? It's hard to miss. There are seven days. Uh, In fact, if we were experts in the original language, we discovered that the first sentence has seven Hebrew words. 
the second sentence has 14 Hebrew words. Uh, that is, the number seven is there very, very carefully in place. And this number points to wholeness or perfection or completeness. That's the way it's generally used in the Bible. And certainly that's the way it's being used here. Seven times we're told, and God made. Seven times we're told, it was so. Seven times we're told, it was good. There's just that repetition of pattern to reinforce a point. Even the seven-day structure has correspondence. Uh, In the first day, you get the creation of light. In the fourth day, you get uh, the means by which the light is provided, uh, the greater and lesser lights. Uh, And you see that with, you know, second and fifth and third and sixth. There's correspondence between those things. Even the day structure uh, has the same sort of pattern. If you go to the first day... There's the command from God, verse 3, let there be light. There's the second stage, fulfillment, and there was light. There's the explanation that follows, third stage, verse 4, the light was good. And then the fourth stage, you get the day formula. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. It is so carefully structured to highlight a message. Now, if I asked you, having heard the first chapter read... If you had to summarise this first chapter with just one word, just one word for this whole chapter, what would it be? What would it be? Now, just so you don't just disagree when I say what I'm going to say, I thought I could just swap that idea with each other. One word, swap with the person next to you that summarises what you think this first chapter is about. You only get one word, okay? And because you only have one word, it'll only take you three and a half seconds each, right? Go for it, right? Okay, I should have said I'm not going to get you to share it so you're perfectly safe with your one word, right? apart from the person who heard you say it. Um, let me say, I think the, the word that captures Genesis chapter 1 is this word, God. Right? God. Now, the reason I say that is because God is mentioned 35 times in this open, opening section of the Bible. You might have said creator, you might have even said creation, but in fact, God is the word 35 times and if you're good at your times tables seven times five right the whole pattern of repetition is so strong here and god is the subject of almost every sentence in this in this opening chapter it's extraordinary so let's look at what it's saying about who god is we're told that he exists before anything in the beginning god in the beginning God. He's not created. He is there. God is there. Then creation is next. God created the heavens and the earth. He brought the universe into existence. And in bringing the universe into existence, it just highlights his extraordinary nature. Uh, I looked these statistics up on Google, so that they must be right. Um, But Google says that there are over 400 billion stars in the universe, we think, at this stage. Now, 
I cannot get my head around that number. Uh, apparently there are over 170 million galaxies. Right? That, I, the vastness of that is just beyond my com- comprehension. We have a God who made those. But it's not just the vastness of it. There's the intricacy of what he's made. Now you look at a spider's web and the finesse that goes into that creation. Or if you're more scientifically minded, you know, subatomic sequencing. Who's responsible for that? Uh, The God we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 1, he is that God. It's no wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. For so they do. You discover here in chapter 1, everything is created for a purpose. Did you hear it at the end of each day? God declares everything he's made. Good. 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 And when you get to the creation of humanity, it is very good. Now, this isn't a moral statement that is good as opposed to bad or degenerate. It's a statement about fulfilling the purpose for which God has made it. In Isaiah 45, uh, the prophet says this, He who created the heavens and the earth, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He didn't create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Uh, he, he created with purpose and intention. And in fact, all, all modern scientific endeavor is based on the premise that God has made this world that way. Good. That, that idea of goodness also um, points to the essential character of this world. Uh, that is, when you look at... We get to Genesis 3, and we'll do that in a few weeks' time, and you see there's a certain fracturing of this world and the problems that occur, a corruption. But here in Genesis chapter 1, and it even stands today, you look at a wonderful world, and it points you to a wonderful God, a God of... Uh, beauty and grace and generosity and integrity. That's uh, captured here in Genesis chapter 1. Good. God creates with purpose. And did you notice God creates by his word? In Genesis, there's actually not one scientific formula that is mentioned because that is not the point. That is not the point. God creates everything from nothing by speaking. And God said. And it was so. Now can I say that? That is such a contrast with ancient world religious views as well as modern, modern views of how things have come into existence. Uh, when I was at Bible college, we had to study the Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish, right? And you may be a student of this, uh, this myth, I don't know. But uh, I'm going off my memory. But here's my memory of how the world came into existence. Uh, the Babylonians had this story where the gods, multiple gods, eventually had a fight. And uh, as part of that fight, they got their swords out and started hacking into each other, okay? Uh, one of the gods chopped one of the other gods' heads off, right? Off it came, rolled away and formed the planet Earth. 
Okay? Now, do you see what a stark contrast that sort of worldview is from what you have here in the Scriptures? God speaks, and it happens. God speaks, and it happens. God speaks, and it happens. And you see what a remarkable contrast it is by comparison with modern worldviews. Science uh, has a Big Bang theory, right? What we do is we reach into the past and explore as much as we possibly can to explain the foundations of our world. And then we reach a wall. And so we speculate about a big spontaneous event that occurred at that point. Uh, It's just a speculation about what we don't know. So different here. The Bible says nothing is random, nothing's by accident, nothing's by speculation. God speaks and it happens. The other thing just to note on our way through is that God sustains everything that he has made. God upholds it. All creation depends on him. Uh, The world is not self-supporting. God, by his very nature, makes it all happen. Uh, The reading that we heard from Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul's in the Areopagus, he's talking to the Athenians, and they're a a fairly atheistic group in some ways. Well, they're God-believers, but they're they're speculators. They love philosophizing. And Paul, at one point in that reading, he said, in, in explaining the one true God, he says, he is the God who gives all men life and breath and everything else. Isn't that interesting? Do you realize that the God of the Bible, the God here of Genesis chapter 1, is the one who enables you to take every breath that you take during the course of my speaking and our gathering today? You realize this God superintends the message from your brain to your heart that enables your heart to beat, right? The God of the universe is doing that for you Constantly. And he takes his hand away from this world and it stops. That is the God that we are speaking of. Friends, we, we could explore so much more uh, of the nature of God as we look at this chapter. But what I want to do for just the few minutes that I have left is to explore the implications that flow. Uh, from what we discover about God here in Genesis chapter 1. Because these these words, this information, it cuts across ancient and modern ideas about God. We've already um, seen some of the implications for ancient worldviews. The ancient world was generally polytheistic. Most religions had a stack of gods, and they all made their contribution to how the world ran and what happened. Genesis 1 just blows that idea completely out of the water. Uh, Genesis 1 says there is, there is only one God, and he is the God who made everything. It's even highlighted by uh, even the use of words here. I mentioned uh, 35 times in this opening chapter until chapter 2, verse 3, God is mentioned. Uh, we then get to chapter 2, verse 4, and God is mentioned again, but it's a different name for God. So when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, Yahweh, it's the personal name for God that's mentioned there. 
What we have 35 times here in Genesis chapter 1 is the generic name for God, the God, rather than the personal name for God. Now, do you understand why that's happening here? Because you're in an ancient worldview is there are multiple gods. Right? Uh, there are the gods of uh, the sun and the gods of the moon. There are the gods of lots of creative forces were given um, godlike personification. Well, what we have here in chapter 1 is uh, the fact that we're being told that there is only one God, the God. And just in case we're a bit slow, that's stated 35 times. Right? Just in case we're a bit thick. Right? Who created the heavens and the earth? The God. 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 The God, the God. I don't know what number I'm up to. But you get the point, don't you? Right? There is no one can rival this God. There is only one true God. It's interesting here in chapter 1. In the ancient world, the planets, all were attributed godlike attributes, given names. Notice when you get to day 4, how the sun and the moon are described. They're not named because we're being told very clearly these are not, these are not gods. It's just the, the greater and the lesser light. All under the control of the God who made them and sustains them. It's very, very studied. And just as it cuts across ancient worldviews, uh, today I think it cuts across alternative religious views. No question about that. Uh, take Hinduism, for example. A religion with many gods. Uh, many gods all having their sphere of influence. Um, Hinduism has a circular view of history and reincarnation. Whereas the God of the Bible, he's eternal. And creation isn't random or chaotic. And according to the Bible, people, we'll get to this next week, people are valuable because they are made in the image of God. So different from Hinduism. See, you ask a Hindu the difference between Andrew Newman and a cockroach, you see. And a Hindu would say, well, essentially no different really, you know, um, uh, they just made different choices in a previous life. And I want to understand how contrastingly different uh, the view of people is here in Genesis chapter 1. Created in the image of God. No cockroaches in this plan for humanity. Right? Or Buddhism. Buddhism is supposed to be the fastest growing religion in Australia. Uh, but let me say it's growing off a fairly low base, so we're not talking about very many Buddhists in Australia at this point in time. But listen to the, the Buddhist worldview. Uh, Buddhists don't believe there is a God, uh, essentially, and they believe that enlightenment occurs through escaping this physical world. You need to reject pleasure in order to soar. How different is a Christian worldview here in Genesis chapter 1. According to the Bible, God is good. And he made a good world that we're meant to enjoy 
It has wonder and it has beauty. And pleasure is good. God has made us to experience pleasure. So vastly different. Genesis chapter 1 cuts across all this. And even modern worldviews that are not religious, you see the way in which the Bible intersects so strongly across these things. Um, Atheism. So there's a new form of atheism emerging, uh, the belief that there is no God. So you would have seen various people in Australia recently who've been promoting this sort of view, Hitchens, uh, Lawrence Krauss, Dawkins some time ago. And according to this view, this sort of new atheism, we're just random collations of atoms uh, that are caught up in the slipstream of a meaningless universe. That's just who we are. One author put it like this. Uh, we just are, for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. Then we aren't. I went to the funeral of a, uh, a woman that I've known for about 50 years, so when I went to this funeral at the start of this year. And uh, it was just really sobering. Because at this funeral, we were told that this woman who'd, who'd died of cancer, she'd struggled with it for a number of years, that she didn't believe there was anything beyond death, uh, but rather that she would live on through her children. And that what she wanted to happen was that her ashes should be cremated and her ashes should be taken back to the place where she was born and scattered so that it could complete that sense of the circle of life. Now understand where this theology comes from. That's the Lion King. Right? Just in case you're wondering, it is, isn't it? You know, that, that sort of circularity of understanding of life. Uh, but it was just so gutting because we're, we're eternal creatures. That is, we've been made for a relationship with God to endure forever. And God has made us for that very purpose. So, so different. Or even other views like um, environmentalism. That's, that's a new religion, isn't it? That's uh, emerged in our world. And there's a lot, a lot of right concerns when we come to environment. Uh, we just come through an election where all these issues were to the fore and we've just been hearing this week about uh, Pacific nations and their concern about our use of coal here in Australia. It's, it's incredibly topical. Rising sea levels, carbon gas emissions, coal-fired power, um, solar energy, a world population that's rapidly outstripping our resources. All those things are huge. But of course for some... Uh, creation is actually their God. It occupies that, that central space of meaning and purpose uh, so that we get our understanding from knowing we're part of this created order. And on this understanding, uh, for some, any animal is as valuable as a human being because human beings are just animals when it comes down to it. So some people can talk about the, the murder of whales, you see because they attribute the same sort of life force to animals. But can I say, Genesis just completely contradicts that way of thinking. God is not uh, in his creation. You don't discover God by looking at a rock or a tree, because he's not in it. it. It reflects his creative power, but he's not captured by that. You see, it's God who gives creation value and 
purpose. And what we discover here in Genesis chapter 1 is that human beings are actually imbued with more value than animals. That is clear from this chapter, and we'll come back to it next week. Let me just pick up on one other worldview that I think this part of the Bible intersects with so strongly. And it's materialism or, or hedonism. I think this is the primary religion of Australia and actually most Western worlds. That is, the goal of life becomes the acquisition of stuff or experiences. And as I say, I think it dominates us. When you think back to the election in May, what were the issues that dominated the news about the election of our next parliament? Well, there's only one, really. That was the economy. And that was made up of issues around franking credits, uh, retirees, home ownership, superannuation, negative gearing, living wage. Those were the issues. And even the environmental questions were generally tied back to an economic sort of an issue. Now, that is the question that we seem to be asking. But Genesis is really clear. Uh, Christians, I think, should have an enormous amount to contribute to an environmental debate. Uh, because we're actually connected to the one who made the world and he made it with certain purposes and made us to superintend it. Right? So let me say, I think that environmental question should be one that Christians lead on. Uh, and again, we'll come back to that in due course. But friends, can I just say, we do not get our meaning from the creation around us, what God has made. You don't get your meaning from what you own or possess or how much you have in the bank or the experiences that you can get and explore in this world. Do you see how perverse that is? You see, God has made us for relationship with himself and made us to take care of the world that he has made. Now see how perverted it is for us to get our sense of meaning and value from the created order rather than the creator, it's all back to front. It's just wrong. And that's why it just goes awry, mucks up every point, because it's all backwards. Friends, let me, let me conclude. Uh, what does it mean to believe in the God who created everything? What does it mean? Now, can I say it will have implications for a worldview that is based on atheistic, biological evolution and that way of thinking about the universe. It does have implications for that. But can I say it has much more essential implications? When you're confronted with the the creator God here in Genesis chapter 1, it can only humble you. It can only make you feel very, very small at one level we're not random accidents in an unfeeling universe listen to how the psalmist reflects on the creator God and how we should feel in the face of who he is Psalm 8 when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers isn't that lovely (laughs) it's like God creates the whole universe and it's like um, cross stitch you know it's just needlework to God. That, that's the picture. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, like like globe, pop, 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 you know, that sort of picture. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, 
or human beings that you should care for them? Oh, of course. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And also there's accountability here. So when you understand that God is the owner of all that he's made, we're not free to squat in this world on our own terms. We don't have freedom to ignore the owner or the landlord at this point. Humbling, accountable. But here's the point I want us to go away thinking about this morning. And when you're confronted with the creator God here in Genesis chapter 1, then you know this is a God you can trust. I have uh, a few grandchildren now, and um, one of those is Ollie. When Ollie was about 18 months old, I remember him being around at our house. At our house, we have this wooden stairwell that goes upstairs. Uh, there are about nine steps that lead up to the first landing, about six that go up to the second. Okay? And because they're wooden stairs, I get worried when 18 months 18-month-old children go rumbling up these stairs, more so when they're coming back down, actually. And so I'm one of these helicopter grandparents, you know, hovering around, okay? Now, the parents don't seem that worried, right, uh, about what happens to this child. (laughs) No, it's not true. Um, They don't seem worried about this child climbing up our wooden staircase. They probably know better. When I see it happening, I always followed him out. Less so now, he's he's a bit older. But uh, And I remember seeing Ollie go out, up this staircase, and so I just stood at the bottom right, as he went up the stairs. Great fun, right? Then he was coming back down, more worried. He gets to the first landing, no mishap so far. Turn around on the first landing. I'm standing at the bottom, steep stairwell, wooden, nine steps. Turns around at the top, and he saw me, Papa, right, at the bottom of the staircase. And he did something he has never, ever done before, right? He smiled. He does that uh, quite often, but he smiled, and then he took two steps and jumped. <laughs> Just like that. Right? And uh, Now, there were two things that might have been going through his little brain at that point, I suspect, right? The two things were, Papa is strong enough to catch me, right? Debatable, right? But, uh, <laughs> but that's what he was thinking, right? And the second thing was, he was convinced that I loved him and as he leapt, I wouldn't just go <laughs> and let him crash to the ground, right? Uh, now, I did, and I, I caught him, right? That, that's the reality. He survived, just in case you're wondering, right? <laughs> Friends, this opening chapter of the Bible sets in place the reasons why you can trust God in such a powerful way. He has power. He has authority. He has unimaginable capacity when you consider what's being talked to us here. But also understand, he's a God that is full of grace and goodness. When you consider the created, created order, it's a place of beauty and peace and unity and generosity and goodness. Now, the qualities that we see come under pressure when humanity rejects God in Genesis chapter 3. But nonetheless, they're embedded in the nature of creation because of the creator God we have. But even from Genesis chapter 3, you see those those essential characteristics of God emerging as the Bible unfolds. For the storyline of the Bible is all about a God who wants to shower goodness and grace and mercy on all that he's made, 
but especially humanity. And it reaches a crescendo uh, when you get to the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus comes into this world, very God of very God, enters into our world with the purpose of reconciling humanity to himself because that's what God is like. Colossians chapter 1. We read this. All things were created through Jesus and in him all things hold together. And he came into this world to reconcile humanity to himself. Friends, this is a good God who through his son, through whom everything was made, is reconciling and redeeming people back to himself to enjoy him forever. That's who he is. Genesis 1, friends, we're introduced to a God of unimaginable and awesome capacity. But he is a God you can trust. And you can trust him with your life. Let me pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are an extraordinary God. We thank you that we read through this chapter and we're brought face to face with your very nature, uh, your character, your generosity, uh, and really your forgiveness as we see the Bible unfold. Uh, Father, we pray we'll have that sense of uh, small, smallness in the face of who you are and all you've done. But also, Heavenly Father, we pray that we'll know that the one who has made everything, the one who has created all things, the one who has created us in your image, You have made us for a relationship with you. And you've gone to extraordinary lengths uh, to bring us back into relationship with yourself through your son. Father, we pray that you'll help us to trust you, the God of all power, uh, and the God of unfathomable mercy and grace. And we pray that'll be the quest of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.